Well, our main Bible reading is found in Colossians. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 2, reading from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. And it says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made with our hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to these things, all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, we're going to take a look at that passage, but before we do, just let me mention a couple of things. First, remind you, the question time will be coming up at the end. Also, the sermon outlines in your service sheet, if that's of use to you. And then finally, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance that we get from reading this passage. 
of how you have uh, put us in Christ and therefore all the blessings that he has are ours to share as well. We pray, Lord, that that would give us great confidence not to look elsewhere for other means of achieving salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. The Gospel Minus and the Gospel Plus are two different forms of false teaching. But one is much easier to spot than the other. Gospel Minus stands out because it's when someone takes away from the Gospel. It might look something like this. Jesus died for our sins. If you believe in him, you are justified before God. God raised Jesus from the dead, and now Jesus sits at the Father's side, and Jesus isn't God. Now straight away, it stands out as being false, because it's taken something away from the Gospel. In this case, the divine nature of the Son. What's a little more difficult is when you come across the Gospel Plus. In this case, everything that we would expect is included, but one little extra bit is thrown in. Jesus is Lord. He died for our sins. He is divine and was born of a virgin. He died, rose again. He's seated at the right-hand side of the Father. And have you discerned God's will for your life? Now, as you heard the statement, it probably sounded perfectly fine. And maybe that's because it is actually perfectly fine. Maybe you filled in a few blanks, adjusted the contents a little, and as a result, cannot see any problem with it. But that's the difficulty to this version of false teaching. Everything is there that we're used to. It isn't the absence of something that makes us uneasy. And if something slips in, we may not notice it particularly if it's a language that we're used to hearing. Now, maybe you've got your suspicions as to what I added in, and really it would only be after further discussion that you could conclude if it was questionable or not. But that's the point. Gospel Plus is an extremely subtle form of false teaching, and it makes it all the more dangerous because it's much more deceptive than Gospel Minus, because it's much harder to spot. Well, the church in Colossae is faced with teachers who take the Gospel Plus approach. So they affirm everything we might expect them to do, but they also teach that Christians should deny themselves. It's mentioned a couple of times in verse 18 we read, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which means self-denial. It's also mentioned in verse 23. Now this is a particularly interesting example. After all, Jesus teaches self-denial. So in Matthew 16, verse 24, we read, Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so, 
Is it gospel plus? If the addition is actually already apparently included. But there is a distinction to be made. When Jesus speaks of the believer denying himself, it refers to following Jesus at whatever cost that might incur. If it leads to suffering, being willing to continue to follow Jesus and serving him as Lord while persevering through the suffering. Whereas the false teachers at Colossae are speaking to those who are already following Christ and what they're offering is a higher level of Christianity which involves denying oneself all indulgences in order to reach a higher spiritual plane. So this is something quite different to what Jesus speaks of. Now the reason I've spent quite a bit of time on this one is because it's the most subtle to our ears. The other additions probably won't sit well with us because our society has been influenced by the Bible's teaching. Uh, But for these readers, these would have been real issues. So, for example, in verse 8, we have mentioned the elemental spirits of the world. And verse 18 mentions the worship of angels. Now, immediately, these sound perverse to our ears. But that's because we don't live in a society that worships angels. And that's because of the Bible's influence. But in Colossae, that would have been normal. And so the false teachers assert that the elemental spirits must be placated. Otherwise they'll be angry at their lack of worship. And for the Colossians, this would be something they've grown up with. And it would be a real temptation to add on to their Christianity because it's something that they've always done. At which point it would be a good time to look at Paul's remedy to these ideas suggested by the false teachers. So the false teachers are offering a deeper delve into religion than has been offered by the church. And so the first thing Paul says is, you cannot go any deeper than you already are. Though this isn't their imagery that Paul uses. Let's have a look at verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In verse 9, Paul explains that all fullness of deity is in Christ. This is what is unique about the revelation of God in this latter phase of redemptive history. Moses revealed God to the people of Israel and he knew God face to face. God spoke to the people through Moses. But that does make God 
a few steps removed. The people's experience of their God is through the prophet Moses, a great prophet, and a prophet who had a uniquely close relationship to God, but nevertheless, just a prophet. But when the Son took on a human body at the Incarnation, the one who now revealed the Father was the Son. And the Son being of the same nature as God, the Father has spent eternity with the Son had spent eternity with the Father, so revealed God as He is and has been through eternity. And we have the Spirit that points us to the Son so that we might know the Father. All this makes all future revelation redundant in as far as God has already chosen to reveal himself through the one who's closest to him, and therefore his revelation is complete. Then Paul begins to explore how this applies to the believer. As believers, we have what's called faith union with Christ. That's to say, because we have faith in Christ, we're united to him, and all the spiritual blessings that belong to Christ belong to us because of our union with him. Paul simply says, we are filled in him, which is intended to put Colossians off from entertaining the false teachers, because what more can they offer since they already have everything in Christ? At which point Paul spells something of the content out. Now we have to do a little work here because it isn't quite what we might expect. As we read on from verse 11, it wouldn't be odd to suggest that we're expecting Paul to talk about Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and the implications they have for the believer. But that's not what we, quite what we see in verse 11. Let's have a look. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It goes on, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul talks about circumcision, not Jesus' death as we might expect. And this raises the question, what is the circumcision of Christ? That would be helpful to know because it is that that the Christians in Colossae have taken part in. Notice as well, it's a circumcision without hands in contrast to the circumcision that's carried out by the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and in contrast to Jesus' literal circumcision that he would have had when he was a boy or a, child, a, a baby. So actually, it makes sense that Christ's circumcision does refer to Christ's death. 
which has led to a new life being given to the Christians from God because they've died with Christ. And so what we're beginning to see here is because of our union with Christ, we experience the benefits of his actions upon our lives. So to go on, when we're baptised, we're buried with him. And the power that works to raise Christ from the dead also raises us. What all this means is, is though that we're of the uncircumcised, God has now forgiven us because the debt has been nailed to the cross. So that's what it means to be filled in him. And so we can ask the rhetorical question, what else is there to add? What more can be gained? What else is left? It is a gospel that cannot be added to. Because there's no need to add to it. Because the work of Christ is complete. But it also means that any attempt to add to the unaddable. Results in the complete undermining of it all. We have it all in Christ. So any attempt to add to it is to suggest an alternative means of salvation than Christ. And his work would be undone. Hence the extent to which Paul goes to protect the church from such deception. But there's one more thing to mention. Remember the Colossians were being encouraged to worship ele elemental spirits and angels, verse 8 and verse 18. Well, in verse 15, we read this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ has now been given authority over every potential power, powers that are real, and even those that are imaginary. So that Paul can tell the Colossians, you have no need to fear the sun, the moon, the stars. Not because they're powerless, because in their society they were credited with an awful lot of power. But there's something much more tangible than that. Christ has now been raised and he's been raised above all powers and authorities. Those powers do not need to be precated because they're under Christ's rule. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your revelation is complete and our salvation is assured. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be careful not to add to your gospel, but rather bask in the glory of it. We pray, Lord, that we put our confidence in Christ, because in him we are filled. Amen.
Well, I said there'd be an opportunity for questions. That time has now arrived. Yes, Nathan. Yeah, nice spot. So repeat it the recording for the sake of those. So verse, uh, Nathan's comment, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So although the false teachers are trying to add to the gospel and achieve a greater holiness, ultimately they fail because it does have it has no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Yes, Katie. Excellent, yes, good question. So, what's the difference between asceticism um, and taking up our cross and following Christ? So, I guess, so a few things maybe to think about. Um, Some of the things that Christ says actually frees us from forms of asceticism. So, uh, I guess, thinking in terms of, in the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to eat pork um, and other animals and some sort of shellfish. But there's a liberation that takes place when Christ comes because there's a place where it talks about how, um, in saying this, Christ makes all food clean. So you lose that sense where you have to deprive yourself of pork. You can now have your uh, bacon sandwich and your sweet and sour pork and whatever else it might be. Um, so, and that kind of ties in with the twenty-one verse twenty-one: "Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch." Um, and I, and I guess I mean you could go to the sort of medieval asceticism. So you've got kind of monks who would punish themselves, um, be, you know, they sort of self-flagellate themselves because of. And again, that really 
causes serious problems because Christ has taken sacrifice. Who are we to take that sacrifice upon ourselves and punish ourselves? Um, that is futile because there's a greater punishment taking place. So there's those sides of things. Um, and then I think as well, sort of think in terms of the other side of things. So Christ's self-denial that he asks of us when we take up our cross, I guess one of the side of things is that it's we need to remove our autonomy. So it's not about me and being self-centered and it's all and, and I'm the center of the world but rather the focus becomes on there is a, another Lord um, he is the one we're to serve and so it becomes that sort of um, a commitment to serving him and then I think that's where things become quite bring some clarity as well because it's not about what can I do the sort of self-flagellation and depriving myself of pork and sweet puddings and things that I enjoy, that sort of thing. But rather it's, how can I know Christ and serve him? So I think that, that becomes sort of a helpful distinction. That our self-denial is about knowing the one we serve, knowing how he would have us serve him and one another as we relate to one another. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, good spot. Time for more? Nikki. Yes. Um, okay, so Nikki's question is what are the elemental spirits and what do they refer to? It's not an easy question in the sense that. We don't really know um, sort of specifics. So a few clues are, obviously we've got this re reference to elemental spirits of the world. Um, also there's, I mean that's mentioned both in verse 8 and verse 20. There's also a reference to worship of angels. So that could be the same or it could be something different. The suggestion of the commentary is that the elemental spirits could refer to things like um, fire, wind, fire, water, and those sorts of things. So we, you know, we're kind of back in the ancient days, or sun, moons, and stars. So I, I, you probably note, noticed this before, but when God creates the world and it's recorded what's missing is the names of the sun and moon, I, I believe. Um, so we get in verse 14 of chapter 1 of Genesis, God said, let there be lights and expanse of the heavens to separate day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons of days and years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars, God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And it's thought that the reason why it doesn't say God created the sun and God created the moon 
was because it introduced this idea that God was creating these demigods. So you've got these two levels of gods, but rather he's creating the lights. I mean, he does say that they rule over the light at night and day, but that's more in sort of a distinction to distinguish the night from the day. So in this context, there's this sort of idea that they would worship the sun and the moon and the stars. So if we go back to Colossae, you've got this idea that actually this is something that's real. It might not be reality, but it's real to them. So personally, they are scared of the sun, the moon, the stars because they have a power over them. And so that's the context in which Paul is speaking to them. And so the false teachers is saying, you know, but you're not placating the sun, the moon, the stars. You need to, presumably, I don't know for sure, but presumably um, they're saying you need to kind of take them into consideration when you do your worship. Uh, you know, hedge your bets, if you like. And so Paul cuts through that and says, every power and dominion, every would-be power and dominion, whether they're real or not real, they're under Christ. So there's no need to worry about some of the stars. So, yeah. Okay, let's leave it there. We're going to sing uh, When I Survey, and then we'll have a final reflection.